and welcome to a new season of Beyond the Headlines. We are this year's executive directors, Alex Goldapel and Vienna Vendatelli. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. This season, you can expect exciting and relevant weekly content as students from the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy sit down with experts from across the policy landscape. You can join us in the conversation throughout the year by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's at B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Today is election day. As Canadians head to the polls, we take a look at issues that don't usually garner a lot of attention during the campaign. First, I sit down with Yves Giroux, the parliamentary budget officer, to discuss the work that his office is doing costing the party's platforms during this campaign. Then, I talk to Mel Cap, the former clerk of the Privy Council in Canada, to discuss how the bureaucracy plans for a transition in government. Finally, senior producer Arya Ansel talks with Adam Lawton, a Monk School student and NDP candidate for Mississauga Lakeshore, about youth involvement in politics. Our first guest is Yves Giroux. Mr. Giroux is the Parliamentary Budget Officer of Canada. He boasts a long career of public service and has been PBO since 2018. He joined us by phone on October 8th. Eve, thank you so much for taking time out of what I'm sure is uh, your very busy schedule. My pleasure. So can you explain what is the role of the Parliamentary Budget Officer and the nature of the work that you've been doing during this election campaign? Sure. So the role of the Parliamentary Budget Officer in normal times is to provide parliamentarians, that is MPs and senators, with independent and nonpartisan um, information related to the national finances, government expenditures, and the economy. Uh, however, in September 2017, the government added a uh, um, part to my, to my mandate that allows political parties and independent members of the House of Commons to ask me to cost any proposals that they are thinking about making during an electoral campaign. And the period in which they can ask me to cost these proposals starts 120 days before a fixed election date. So this year, it was at the end of June, that parliamentarians, well, MPs in that case, could start could uh, started asking me to cost proposals that they were planning on making during the campaign. So as you just mentioned, it's the first campaign where the parliamentary budget officer has been ca- costing platforms. How would you evaluate how it's going so far? Well, I don't want to jinx it, but so far, and it's not over, that's why I'm saying I don't want to jinx it, um, it's going very, very well. We've had a lot of requests, some of which have been uh, announced publicly by the parties. Um, So we've got good interactions with uh, the major parties. They've asked us to cost sometimes items that were relatively straightforward. In other occasions, some items that were quite uh, innovative. And by that, I can think about the uh, financial transactions tax that was announced by the Green Party, as well as a wealth tax that was announced by either the Greens or, or the NDP. I don't remember exactly. So we've had a wide variety of proposals that were submitted to us. And so far, I don't think we have we had to turn down any one proposal because we were able to cost every single one of them. So from that perspective, I consider this a big success. 
Uh, and more importantly, I think it provides Canadians with information that is nonpartisan and unbiased when they prepare to vote on parties' proposals because they know that a nonpartisan body has costed them. So you mentioned uh, sort of the procedure parties have to request uh, that the proposal be costed by by your office. Do you think that this format gives uh, your office enough sort of leeway uh, to, to oversee the different proposals? And do you think that it provides Canadians with that sort of nonpartisan fiscal uh, oversight that is necessary? Or do you think that uh, something should maybe in future elections, there should be more powers for, for the office to cost platforms without requiring uh, the parties to, to ask for it in the first place? Well, that's an interesting question. Right now, the service is an on-demand service, so parties can choose to to ask for a costing by the PBO or not. And some parties have obviously chosen that path, and some others have chosen to ask me to cost cost some of their proposals. Others have asked me to cost virtually all of their proposals. So right now, it's an on-demand service. And as you pointed out, I estimate the cost of individual proposals, but I cannot bless an entire platform. So if there are small items that the parties have not asked me to cost, then I don't pronounce on on all of the platform. So that's something, it's a bit early to pronounce, but that's something that will be up for debate after the election as we get um, into the the post-mortem phase. So my office and myself will be preparing a post-mortem report, and we will be discussing with stakeholders, with political parties, with staff in the office, uh, so we will be seeking comments as to what their assessment is of the service we offered. And based on the feedback we receive and our own impressions, uh, we may be recommending some legislative amendments. And parliamentarians will also certainly have a view as to whether the service should be mandatory or whether it's better to leave it as an on-demand optional service for parties to use. Right. And just to just to clarify, if I'm not mistaken, your term is is seven years. So you'll have another election, uh, at least at least one, to to do this again, right? Exactly. So my term is a seven year term, as you mentioned, um, and I'm I've just finished year one, so I have six years to go. The term is also renewable up to an additional seven years, uh, but not going too far ahead. Um, I'm. I'm in for at least one other election, maybe two, depending on what the results of October 21st are. If it's a a minority situation in Canada, minority governments don't tend to last a full four years. So there could be two additional elections in my mandate, but at the very least, uh, one for sure. Right. So you sort of alluded uh, to this before. Uh, Parties have been very proud to announce that parts of their platforms have been costed by your office. It's been a topic of at the debates, on the campaign trail. At this point, October 8th, we're roughly two weeks out from the election day. Where do all the parties stand on having their their platforms costed? What can you provide as a, as a sort of update? Um, that's, the, that's the strange thing about um, the election platform costing or the election proposal costing mandate. Um, usually I have, I work in an environment where it's uh, open and transparent. The work of my office is open and transparent. But during the election period, the legislation clearly states that everything I do remains confidential until the party or the parties decide to make their commitments, which I have costed, public. So I cannot pronounce on the 
state of affairs of a party versus another, how many costings I have done, uh, for which parties, which parties have asked me to do costings but have not released them. So I'm bound by confidentiality rules that are quite strict. So during the election, but also after the election. So, for example, if a party or multiple parties ask me to cost items that they never announce, even after the election, I cannot disclose that publicly. So it's a different, um, a different way to operate in the electoral period, and we we had to to switch gears pretty quickly, almost instantly, from one day to the other, um, and change our mindset from one of openness and transparency to one of confidentiality and, and secrecy. It's very interesting, and yeah, we'll we'll certainly respect uh, respect the rules. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So you've obviously been listening to watching the debates, listening to announcements on the campaign trail. Uh, is there one or maybe multiple policies that you've heard uh, announced that haven't been costed that you would like to have the opportunity to review? <laughs> yes, that's putting me on the spot. Um, and I'll provide an answer that you probably won't like. And I'll just say yes, but I can't say which ones. All right. Well, we'll, we'll leave our listeners guessing and then <laughs> hopefully that... Uh, they make your way into your office before October 21st. Uh, so former parliamentary budget officer Kevin Page's Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy has also been costing platforms and providing uh, pass or fail grades to the parties. Have you had a chance to review some of their work? And um, how would you say that it sort of differs from what you are doing? Yes, I've looked at what uh, the IFSD has done. Uh, it's a, an interesting perspective that they have because uh, what they do is assess the entirety of a platform and they determine whether it passes some some criteria regarding transparency, fiscal sustainability, and so on, which is different than the mandate that we have. So our mandate is to cost individual items, for example, a tax cut or a tax increase or spending program, uh, whereas they assess uh, the, the macro picture. So it's a complement to each other. They do that without being asked by the party, so they do that of their own volition. So it's a, a compliment, I would say, to the service we provide to parties and to Canadians. But it's been very interesting to watch. Would you mind uh, getting in a little bit into the methodology that uh, you and your team use when reviewing uh, different policy proposals? What, what sort of goes into that process? Uh, it depends on the nature of the uh, proposal, obviously, uh, but I can talk about something that's fairly uh, well-known, so a tax change. Uh, so in that case, we will get a request from the party. They will say we want to increase the basic personal amount or reduce the uh, tax rate that applies to the first uh, tranche of income. So we will ask them what exactly they want to do, in some cases, straightforward uh, tax policy proposal, for example. We'll ask them if they want to change the associated tax credits, the date of coming into effect, and then we will use models, econometric models that we already have. We will run the numbers in our models and then look at any potential interaction effects with other proposals. Uh, for example, the uh, Progressive, the Conservative Party announced yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, or I'd say on Monday, to be clear, Monday, October 7, they announced that they would make admissions to national museums free. And the same day, they also announced that they would create a new national museum, Museum for the RCMP. So we looked at 
initially we costed the pre-admissions to all the national museums that currently exist. And when they submitted the cost proposal or the proposal, the request to cost the creation of a new national museum, we also included the interaction effect of their other policy free admission. So when there are policy proposals like that, we also include interaction effects. How many people are you working uh, right now in the PBL? So in total, we're about 40 employees. Okay, and most of the people currently are there on a, on a temporary basis for the election? No, surprisingly, most of them are on a permanent basis because as part of the 2017 mandate expansion that saw the office uh, assigned to costing electoral commitments, we also had a, an expansion in our mandate covering more uh, House committees and, and Senate committees and requiring that we cost and provide advice provide information to Parliament on other pieces of uh, government uh, business, for example, the estimates and so on. So our mandate was expanded to cover electoral commitments, but also other uh, other business that's regular. So uh, as a result, we had to increase our contingent of staff, uh, but most of them are permanent. And uh, just maybe as a last question, uh, we, we talked about this before, but... Uh the topic of, of PBL costing has come up in multiple debates and, and parties are very proud of the fact that they've had had some parts of their platforms or all of their platforms costed. Do you think that we've created a uh, successful, maybe institutionalized norm going forward where parties won't have an option but to cost their platforms in, in future elections? Well, that's a, a difficult question to answer because it's still there's still time in the election where things could go in a different way, but I think we have proven that there is value in having independent costings for electoral commitments. Um, that ensures that when parties themselves come up with pr proposals, they have a better idea of the cost and they can make better informed decisions as to whether to include items in their platforms or not. And we have seen that. Um, parties deciding not to pursue items after we have provided them with costing. So in that pers from that perspective, I think it, it's, it's an important fixture, an important uh, addition to the, democ the, de sorry, the democratic process, uh, but also for Canadians to ensure that whenever there's a costing that's uh, provided by the PBO, it is nonpartisan and it is solid. It's done. It's been done by professionals, as opposed to having been done by people who may be under pressure to lowball or to overestimate the real numbers. So I think that provides um, significant value added for Canadian voters. And I certainly hope this is a permanent fixture because it increases the quality of information available to voters. Do you think that Canadians understand the implications of the numbers, or do you think that there's maybe a need for potentially macroeconomic tools to help people digest some of the things that they're seeing in your reports? I think it varies by segments of the population. There's a good segment of the population that's not that interested in politics and in numbers, and that's fine. I have some in my family who don't care that much about numbers and politics. Uh, but there's also a small segment of the population that's very interested in anything that's related to politics. And there's also a segment of the population that's very interested in public policy, public finances, the economy in general. 
And I think the work that we do probably appeals already to these like number nerds, economy aficionados, and so on. Uh, but it's always a bit more difficult to reach the people who are not that interested in politics or in numbers. And that's why I've been making an additional effort to, to be present in the media to explain the work that we do in the office. Um, that being said, if people want to get informed and want to improve their knowledge of what we do, we have a very accessible website uh, that people can look at and in, get informed uh, in addition to the, the dissemination that we do in, in the media. But you can't force people who are not interested in financial literacy, in numbers, and in politics to suddenly get interested. And I think that's where the media has a role to play in summarizing the work that we do and making it accessible to the largest number of Canadians. I think that's a good transition. And for our listeners, if you're interested in, in seeing the costings done by the Parliamentary Budget Office, you can go to their website, uh, pbo-dpb.gc.ca, uh, and it's pretty easily navigatable. I've also seen that uh, Mr. Giroux is, is active on Twitter once in a while, so uh, there is that avenue as well. Uh, Yves Giroux, thank you so much for joining us today. We are uh, very grateful for your work and, and super interested to see what comes in the next 13 days. Um, have a good rest of the election cycle, and uh, yeah, we'll talk uh, talk soon after, hopefully. Thanks, Alex. Once again, that was Yves Giroux. Remember, you can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond the Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Our second guest is Mel Cap. Mel Cap is the former clerk of the Privy Council, High Commissioner to the United Kingdom, and President and CEO of the Institute for Research on Public Policy. He's also a member of the Order of Canada. He joined us in studio on October 15th. Uh, Mel Cap, thank you so much for, for joining me in studio. Pleasure, Alex. So you were the uh, highest ranking civil servant in Canada for, for three years, just over three years. Can you explain sort of what the public service does in the lead up and immediately after a general election? Well, everyone who's involved in uh, policy and advising the government will be preparing. They'll be preparing uh, all... Uh, analyses of all the issues that are going to be before the government, as well as analyses of all the commitments that the government has made. And so the deputy ministers will all get their policy organizations uh, working on this. And clearly the clerk of the Privy Council will be mobilizing the Privy Council office to prepare this. And uh, the he will be collecting material from all of the other departments. So the departments are the ones where the deep knowledge is. Privy Council Office is where they're going to coordinate and prepare. How much time normally goes into that, that planning process? Typically, the, the plan for the next transition will begin on October 22nd. Uh, I mean, the, it is a continuous process in some respects. However, uh, typically, I would say uh, people now have been doing this since uh, getting back from holiday in the summer. Uh, when I, I was in Ottawa in June on a panel and uh, asked people to raise their hands, and indeed everyone raised their hands that were preparing currently then in June for the transition in October. And so that, that's really a very much of an ongoing process. Right. Um, so current polling is suggesting that we are headed towards a, a minority, either minority government or a coalition government. What implications might that have on the work uh, that is being done by the bureaucracy in planning for transition? 
So in departments, there will be um, people are analyzing the commitments of all the parties so that they'll know what kind of dynamic will take place afterwards. And once a minister has been sworn in for a department, they'll be able to uh, the, the officials will be able to advise the minister on how all of the other parties are going to handle the kinds of issues that they'd be presented with, if it's poverty, child poverty, if it's um, uh, pipelines, whatever. And uh, in the Privy Council office, there will be a lot of work going on on house management and how uh, a prime minister of a minority government will have to accommodate the policies of the government in order to be able to face the uh, opposition and make sure that they can continue to government and govern and that they have the confidence of the House. So in the Pri Privy Council office, there's a group that's legislation and house planning, and they will uh, be doing the kinds of analyses of what, what parties would support uh, what kinds of initiatives that the government has committed to. And that might be a uh, confidence and supply agreement with one of the parties, and we've seen that before, certainly in Ontario uh, with a signed agreement and in the federal level with a, uh, an understanding with one party. Or it may be uh, an understanding issue by issue. And so for uh, the budget, you might need uh, the NDP and you have to give them enough to support you. And if for something on uh, child poverty, it might be a different issue, and uh, something on pipelines might go with a different party. And so that kind of calculus is being uh, analyzed right now and pre preparations underway depending on who would form such a minority government. So you were a uh, clerk in 2000 uh, for, the, for the general election when, when Prime Minister uh, Chrétien won and pretty overwhelming majority at the time, uh, sort of volatile years, and the last one before, I think, 2011, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, can you kind of just describe what it was like uh, then in, in your role as clerk of the Privy Council and some of the sort of work that you were doing and uh, maybe the first few days, what the sure. first few days looked like after his, his victory? So first of all, one of the really important things is the role of the clerk. I, I've often wanted to write a an article called The Essence of Clerkness and what is it that is so important. And it's about the continuity of government. And so the clerk is preparing for all outcomes and crises that might happen in the period after the uh, election, but before the swearing in of a new government. Those are very vulnerable positions, and uh, the clerk will be prepared for handling crises in that period. But the clerk will have reached out to the opposition uh, party leaders, and that's a really important thing. Now, I've got to say, I did that in 2000. However, uh, that fell into uh, disuse, and I know that when the clerk of the day approached uh, Prime Minister Harper and said, uh, I should reach out to the leader of the opposition and the th leader of the third party and prepare them for governing, uh, just in case you lose, uh, Prime Minister Harper said no. Why would I do that? Nobody did it for me mm -hmm. in 2006. And so there's a, uh, but that's a really important principle that the clerk, as the custodian of continuity of government, should be reaching out to the leaders of the opposition and answering their questions, not telling them about what the governing party is doing, but rather preparing them for the possibility that they would be either prime minister or in a supporting role for governing. 
And we've seen that in the United Kingdom where uh, Sir Gus O'Donnell at the time with the wonderful um, acronymic uh, initials of G-O-D, uh, but God actually played a crucial role in David Cameron's forming of the uh, government in 2012 where he actually brought the leaders together. He would tell you that all he did was serve coffee, but in fact what he did was he helped them negotiate an understanding and a deal. And that's a really crucial element of what the what the clerk is should be preparing for now, but also, and this goes to where I think you were um, intending, uh, is being prepared for those first days. So. Um, what we prepared in 2000, and which uh, which is now almost 20 years ago, but um, my beard is legitimately gray. Uh, what we prepared was a very thick binder of all the issues that came up during the election campaign, and all the issues that we thought were important. Looking over the horizon, um, and being pre to be prepared for that prime minister, whoever that might be, uh, and then. Um, we prepared another binder, which were the issues that would come up in the first 100 days. What are the issues you're going to have to deal with? What are the meetings, uh, international meetings you're going to have to attend? What are the federal provincial issues you'll have to deal with? So from October to December, think through December, think of uh, uh, the uh, multilateral meetings where Canada will have to take positions, the issues at the United Nations, do you want to continue with the seat, uh, seeking the seat at the UN Security Council, things like that, that will require what are you going to do in Syria, what are you going to do with Canadian forces in Mali, uh, now that they're out, but are you going to put them back in, and, and have that other binder, which are the immediate issues. And then the important thing that I did and which I hope the uh, current clerk is doing is preparing a very personal letter that says, here's what I think the major challenges facing Canada are. Here, here are the issues that have the public service awake at night worrying about. And preparing that letter that says, Prime Minister, these are the things you better pay attention to. So that kind of preparatory work is underway. Uh, and as you say, in the context of a possible minority government, uh, that becomes very complex. Right. So your, your answer sort of uh, leads me to a few, a few more questions. Um, when does that binder get finished? Is it night before? Is it a week before? With this kind of close election, it's the night of. I mean, we all had all of the staff... Uh, in the then called Lounge Van Block, now the Privy Council Office and Prime Minister's Office building. And uh, people were, we watched the television results from the building. Now, uh, what I didn't tell you was my failing uh, as clerk. I uh, had, had indeed reached out to the leader of the opposition. I had worked with his team of transition people who went on, both of whom went on to be ministers in the Harper government eventually. Uh, and so they were well prepared, and they had some. One of them had been in the Mulroney government, uh, and we. I helped them by answering their questions, um, but we had prepared a what was then a pale green book because uh, that was the color of the then Canadian Alliance, which went on to become. I mean, it was. It's hard to believe now, but there were stories about Prime Minister Stockwell Day uh, at the time. And we prepared a pale red book because the media had all 
prepared for a minority alliance or a minority liberal government. What we failed to do was prepare for what you noted, um, a very large liberal majority. Mm -hmm. And that book would have been slightly different. Uh, and I sort of regret not having done that. So sort of I, following up on that, I, I heard a rumor that in 2011, the, the public service was sort of caught by surprise and had to scramble in the final few weeks as the NDP under Jack Layton sort of started to rise up in the polls and, and obviously went on to form the official opposition. How much planning now goes into those sort of unlikely uh, scenarios? Is, is, is the is the Privy Council planning for a uh, you know People's Party of Canada government right now? No, I would say that would be a waste of time. Uh, planning for a Singh government, I think, is a waste of time, but I'm not sure I would tell them to down pens. Uh, and frankly, one of the things you learn in that transition planning is that that work on thinking through what a Singh government, for instance, would do is good preparatory work for when you need to be able to satisfy Singh in the opposition, even if he's the third party, uh, that when either Scheer or uh, Trudeau uh, form a government. So um, that preparatory work goes on in some depth, uh, but again, it, it's more as a constraint than it is preparing for Prime Minister Singh. Um, who knows? I mean, I you know that that latent sweep that took place in Quebec uh, was quite remarkable. And one of the things we know is that polls tell you a lot, but they don't tell you everything. Right. Um, so you sort of mentioned the the need to continue, you know, the, the actions of the of governing and and the need to you know have a smooth transition before. Uh, I think there's been some confusion recently about sort of what is the role of the government during the writ period and what they can and can't do. And I think that was highlighted by the government's recent appeal of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal's uh, ruling on Indigenous child welfare. And what is the what is the government allowed to do during a writ period? So the, there is no rule. This is all by convention and it's all by unwritten convention. Uh, there is a guide for ministers which explains uh, what... Uh, can and can't be done in the period. In the UK, it's a little more formalistic, uh, and it's called PERDA, uh, where uh, ministers are obliged to govern. Now, remember that in the two weeks after the election, if Scheer wins and he's forming his cabinet and preparing to govern and not yet sworn in, that there is always a minister of something and everything. There is always a minister responsible for something. And uh, be it a leftover lab uh, liberal minister that uh, is not going to be minister after two weeks uh, by, in November, they're still the minister. And so should something happen that requires uh, decision-making, uh, they're there to take them on. What they, can what they are encouraged not to do in the caretaker period, so-called, is to announce new initiatives or make decisions which are irreversible. And the idea being that the next government shouldn't have to undo bad decisions made by this rump uh, minister who is filling in for the period. And that uh, caretaker government and the principles of caretaker government are enumerated. But we have a long list of examples of where ministers have done things that have been indeed irreversible and violated some of those principles. The most famous of which is that um, uh, in the debate uh, when John Turner uh, took the, um, uh, the position of, of uh, taking the Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau appointments, and uh, Brian Mulroney said, you had a choice. 
and uh, uh, Turner had just accepted Mul uh, Trudeau's proposals and uh, made appointments which were, I would argue, questionable. So did the did the government make the right decision in appealing the, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal uh, ruling? There are two ways of answering your question, Alex, and I'll answer it very candidly. The first is, yes, they were correct in uh, doing it as a government because they still had the power and the obligation. And on the substance, I would agree, and here I'm in a minority, I would agree that they should challenge it, not for the re only the reasons that uh, the Prime Minister has said, but also on the substantive reasons. Um, so your, or one of your, one of your successors, maybe not your direct successor, Michael Warnick, the, the former uh, clerk of the Privy Council, uh, before he, he resigned uh, last, last spring, I guess, yep. um, sort of, uh, lamented the, the rising tide of, of hate, of, of animosity, uh, whatever you want to describe it in, in Canadian politics and, and sort of expressed concerns that somebody was going to get hurt and that it, you know, the situation was going to turn violent. And, and earlier this week, we saw uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, have to wear a, a bulletproof vest at, at a rally because there may have been a threat. It, it's sort of unclear, but in, in, you know, we believe that there was a threat. Right. Do, do you agree with his assessment? Do you think that the vitriol has sort of been at an unprecedented level? I'm not privy to the information he was, nor uh, to what prompted the RCMP to put a vest on the prime minister. I, I, I do think that the nature of political discourse has changed and that uh, what we've seen in the United States uh, is that President Trump has been permissive in allowing people to take uh, racist attitudes that they may have and pronounce on them and say them out loud. And these may well have been things that uh, were hidden before but are out in the open now. And the challenge is that it creates uh, animus. It, it promotes uh, negative behavior. And uh, I think we have seen the, the promulgation of bad behavior. Is that... Uh, uh, the result of populist uh, uh, leaders, perhaps, but there's a lot going on here. It's a, uh, a response to the nature of, uh, you know, 280 characters. It's a response to uh, the nature of broadcasting. Uh, you narrowcast uh, mm -hmm. here just as everyone else does. Yeah. Uh, final question, uh, if, if, if I may. Don't ask me to forecast the outcome. What is going to happen on October 21st? <laughs> yeah, no, I have no idea. Um, I, I guess the, best, uh, the most likely outcome is indeed a minority government. I'd say uh, there's a, um, a small margin of a possible uh, Trudeau majority and um, a, a highly likely uh, sheer minority. Uh, that's going to make governing very challenging regardless of the outcome, uh, except for the possibility of a majority. First past the post works well when you get a majority. Looking at what a House of Commons looks like, if the Greens have 12 and the and the NDP 15, um, and one of the crises we will face, a potential constitutional crisis, is when uh, imagine Scheer having more than uh, Trudeau. Uh, conservatives have a plurality. And the governor general asks uh, Trudeau to carry on in, and govern. Mm -hmm. uh, and he has the right to meet the House and uh, face them in a confidence vote. And that's what I think will be a fascinating potential period. Yeah, well, we, uh, we're all excited to see what happens. Uh, 
five days out or six days out from now. Um, Mel Cap, thank you so much for, for joining us in the studio. Pleasure. Once again, that was Mel Cap. Remember, you can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond the Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Our last guest is Adam Lawton. He's a student at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, who is also running in the federal election as the NDP candidate in the riding of Mississauga Lakeshore. He is interested in policies relating to economic justice, including affordable housing, cost of tuition, and poverty. Senior producer R.A. Ansel interviewed Adam in studio on October 15th. Adam, thanks for being on the show today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. So let's jump right into it. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your background and why you decided to get into this race? Well, sure. Um, my political background, I've, I've been in the grassroots movement uh, of the NDP in my riding for about three years. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that in each riding, a party will have what's called a riding association. And the job of the association is to really organize the support in that riding. Uh, and so I got uh, I got myself in the NDP Riding Association for my riding. I met a lot of inspiring people and and realized this is something that I was that I was interested in. And we kind of went from there. Cool. So is is running for office something that you've kind of been thinking of doing for a long time, or how did uh, how did that get started? Well, I kind of I've been thinking about it since I was a kid. Uh, I didn't really consider doing it at this stage in my career at first. Uh, I thought about doing it after having a successful policy career, after having a, you know, a, a career under my belt. But what happened was um, the riding association is supposed to be the source of the candidate. We're mm-hmm. supposed to find a leader. And we just, it, it didn't happen. Uh, no one stepped up. And so I kind of, there was this moment where I thought, well, why isn't anyone standing up? So I was looking at at all the different community leaders and who could have been uh, the NDP candidate. And I thought, why aren't you standing up? Why aren't you standing up? And then at some point, I kind of looked myself in the mirror and said, well, why aren't you standing up? Hmm. So uh, I did so. And that's how I, I came to be the candidate. If you are elected, you'd be one of the youngest MPs in Ottawa. I'm sure you know. Uh, how has the reception been so far uh, to having someone in their mid t- uh, mid twenties running for a seat in the House of Commons? Yeah, well, I, I had a conversation uh, with uh, Butilla, who is uh, she is an MPP. She's um, also performing. I, th- I think she's doing her PhD in in um, health policy right now, and she's a bit on the younger side. I think she's thirty five. Uh, I don't want to be outing people's age, but <laughs> I think that's her age. Uh, and um, I was reading an interesting interview with uh, with her before I started talking to her. And she said, uh, if people ask about your age, then you should talk about what you've done with your time on Earth, like your qualifications. You should talk about uh, the concrete things you've done. So she talks about her education. She talks about the advocacy work that she's done in her area. And I think that's that was great advice that I got from her. That's that's the sort of thing I talk about when people ask about my age. So I'll say I'm 25, but I'm at the Monk School currently. I'm doing my Master's of Public Policy. I'll explain what public policy is, how it's about um, identifying uh, the issues facing people, and and how government can actually wield its its power to to uh, mitigate those problems and to address those issues. And I think people. People respond well to it after you tell them that, uh, well, you're 25, but you've done stuff with your life. 
Right. So I want to kind of stay on this, uh, the topic, and particularly I want to talk about uh, voter turnout amongst uh, young people. So in 2015, voter turnout amongst 18 to 24 year olds was 57 percent, and this was up from around 39 percent in 2011. So from your experience on the campaign trail so far, do you expect this trend to continue? Are you finding that young people are becoming more engaged with the uh, with the political process? Well, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. Um, when I talk to young people in my riding, they seem very they seem very jazzed to use a very old term, which is strange because <laughs> we're talking about young people. Yeah. Uh, they seem very jazzed to be talking about um, the issues that matter to them, and and I hear from them that they're interested in 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 cli- the climate crisis. They're not. Well, it's weird to use the word interested, but it's more like horrified, um, mm-hmm. as I think we all are. Uh, they're interested in in matters of economic justice, um, poverty, and affordable housing. I mean, they're interested in the fact that a lot of the issues that are facing us today are issues that are just keeping behind our generation. Uh, Jagmeet Singh just did uh, an article with the Toronto Star where he said that where he chose as his policy issue um, that's most interesting to him, uh, just the policy issues facing young people. And it's true. A lot of the big policy problems we're, we're being faced with uh, now are problems facing young people. Affordable housing. I think a lot of people in, in our program, the Monk School, are, are worried about whether we'll ever be able to afford a house. Um, climate change. This is the sort of thing that's going to be you know, ravaging our environment and, and uh, changing our world dramatically. Uh, and that's going to be something that we're going to have to face throughout our lives. Um, and uh, tuition, of course, making sure that, uh, well, making sure that people actually, there's actually equal opportunity in this country. You can't have equal opportunity if you don't have um, people of all walks of life able to um, enjoy the benefits of education. What do you say to young people when they say they don't vote because, you know, doesn't really affect their lives or, you know, it's only one, one vote, it doesn't really make a difference? What, what, what do you say uh, to, the, to that kind of thing? Well, uh, there are a lot of things to be said about that. I think the whole uh, it's only one vote, it doesn't make a difference. I think the best way to uh, to kind of assuage that sort of fear is to say, well, voting isn't the only thing you can do, right? There's volunteering, there's civic engagement, um, there's reaching out to your friends, there's even just um, things as simple as, as talking to the people in your family about about elect- uh, the election, about uh, about politics. So I, I think people get this. It's a misunderstanding to say you have one vote. Um, if you if you get yourself out there, if you talk about the issues, if you engage, you can you, your your political power really kind of it multiplies, right? Um, as for what I can say to people about um, their issues don't matter, you know, <clears throat> their. As I said before, the the big issues facing us right now are issues that young people are facing or are going to face. And so having a voice on these issues is imperative for us to have a a bright future. Even though we already touched on this a little bit, I want to uh, turn turn more to the the issues. So what are some of the most common issues you've been hearing uh, from voters on the campaign trail? And maybe you can differentiate between uh, baby boomers and millennials who are a little bit closer to our age. Well, you know, it's funny. On one level, you don't have to differentiate because affordable housing is what I hear. Uh, when I'm knocking on doors, affordable housing is is the main issue that comes up, uh, I'd say, 60, 70 percent of the time. 
And uh, that's really cross-generational, uh, right? For people in our generation, uh, the younger generation, that's really the difference between being able to afford housing or not, uh, being able to actually enter the housing market. That's, that's big for us. Uh, but for baby boomers, I mean, they're concerned with their kids. Um, they're wondering uh, whether their kids are going to be able to afford housing after they leave, uh, after they graduate or after they, uh, they, get, they enter the workforce. And they're worried about themselves as well, right? Um, once they retire, they're, they're thinking about whether they're going to be able to afford the kind of housing that they have now if they're in rental units. And um, seniors are also thinking about affordable housing as well because uh, if you have different circumstances, different health circumstances, then you may have to choose a different form of housing and housing affordability affects them as well. I think that's the main issue that I've seen. Um, but of course, there are many others. Climate, The climate crisis is a big one. I see that, unfortunately, more among young people than among older people. Mm-hmm. But my goodness, I was just at, um, I was just visiting a senior center, and there was a, one particular lady, and she was really, really nervous about the climate issue. She was talking about her daughter and about her granddaughter and how she doesn't see a future for them and how that's the, that's the issue for her, Right. If you're going to create a world, if you're going, if you're going to based on your work, if you're going to, uh, if you're going to, if you're going to decide the future of this world, and you're, if you're going to bring people into this world via children or grandchildren, then I think your main priority should be making sure that those people actually have a place to have like an environment that's livable. Okay, so last question on a more macro level. Uh, what do you think are some of the, the biggest issues that Canada as a country is going to have to uh, contend with and, and deal with over the next few years? Gosh, I feel like I'm just uh, bludgeoning you over the head with the same stuff. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, the climate crisis, right? Yeah. I was just looking at um, a, a model that was done by scientists on what the world would look like with four degrees of warming. And there are hardly any areas left that are inhabitable. It's it's Canada. It's it's uh, Nordic countries. It's it's like northern Russia, and then there's uh, like parts of Australia. It's just and they're just little strips, and you know you've you've got to <laughs> that that's that's definitely. I mean, when it comes to the issue worldwide, of mm-hmm. course that's going to have monumental impacts. When it comes to Canada, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are some people who might be wondering, well, if Canada is one of the livable places, then why should we why should we be upset? You know, if our Arctic is going to, you know, going to become green or whatever, then why should we be upset? But it's it's going to have so many impacts on just day to day living. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think about uh, climate change as kind of a pie in the sky type thing, like how is it going to affect me? Well, it's going to create the most massive ref- refugee crisis in the history of humanity. Well, uh, it's going to um, make it so that the cost of, of living is, is almost uh, like insurmountable to face. Like right now, we're feeling the pressures of the cost of living. But after climate change, mm-hmm. right, the, the cost of food is going to be prohibitively expensive for nearly everyone. Um, but, uh, I mean, let's get off of climate change. For a bit. Like yeah, I, I, so, I can talk about that for a while. So what about uh, the rise of populism and kind of this uh, resurgence of authoritarian governments that we're witnessing around the world right now? Yeah, I mean, I mean that's a major issue. Um, I was just reading an article about how Poland is really on the brink right now mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to whether or not they're going to actually be able to sustain their democracy. Um, 
I think one thing to say about that is um, Canada is remarkably uh, ins- like the- Canada is kind of I- I'm I'm really optimistic about Canada. I'm really proud of being Canadian because we've kind of gone against these these impulses. You know, I, I think we would be um, th- I think the voting landscape, the election landscape, would be very different if we were actually succumbing to populism. Uh, I think one party in particular. Uh, I think you might be able to to guess at that. that might be uh, more powerful if, if we were succumbing to uh, populism. But of course, um, even if it's not necessarily happening as much here, the fact that it's happening in other countries, the fact that it's happening to allies uh, and countries that are not traditionally allies alike means that it's, it's changing um, who we feel like we can deal with, who we can trade with, uh, who we can trust. Uh, it's, it's a scary time, um, but it's also strangely enough a proud time to be canadian adam thanks again for coming on the show today and best of luck to you on election day appreciate it very much Arya. thanks for having me on once again that was adam lawton you have been listening to beyond the headlines many thanks to our guests for joining us on our election special today's show was produced by Arya ansel and myself alice goldapel the views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIOT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all of our episodes on our website, www.beyondtheheadlines.net. If you're a fan of our show and want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at Beyond the Headlines. That's once again, B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.